All right, welcome back. This is the Morning Brushback. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. I'm joined here remotely by Bobby Stevens. Bobby, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. Got another good episode. And we're joined here by a great guest, Ryan Copeland, uh, head coach at University of Illinois Springfield. Ryan, what's up, man? Doing good. Trying to trying to get through all this. So. Yeah. Ryan's a, another repeat guest um, from a couple years back. I think he's probably, what, two years now, something like that? I think it was December of 18 you came came to campus here right oh that's right we did the in-person one very cool yeah the big time setup with all the cameras and the student union yeah yeah that was that was uh when i was just getting into like trying to figure out all this different stuff i think i lost footage from like one camera but in general i thought it worked pretty well but that stuff's harder uh, than people realize to get all those different views and i don't know it was, you know, it was really good. It was enjoyable. I think we were on the air for like two hours. Well, yeah. believe it or not, there's been multiple recruits and their parents that come to the office. We're meeting and um, they like, hey, coach, I want to mention, I listened to a podcast that you were on and, um, you know, you know, a guy named Dan Blewett. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. And, I, and and they're like, yeah, I saw it on Spotify. So I listened to it while we were driving here. I'm like, okay. I hope I, I didn't say anything stupid. <laughs> Well, that was a really deep uh, dive on on like pitch sequencing and like a lot of stuff. So yeah. that's been part of like the overall plan with some of the podcasts with like guys like yourself. Like I search engine optimize it for your name and all that stuff. So it's almost yeah. almost certain that if anyone's trying to research your school, they'll find you and yeah. find that podcast, which is I think is a benefit because yeah, we talked about yeah. a lot of stuff in that in that episode. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. But for those of you who don't know, Coach Copeland. He was a uh, Illinois State Division One player. You're drafted, played a couple years or a bunch of years in the minor leagues. And one of your big things is that you had impeccable control, which I do want to talk about today. And you're also, Coach Copeland is really great with technology and finding the blend of all this stuff that everyone seems to bicker about on Twitter. So people are always bickering about velocity and this, like old school versus new school. But especially if you listen to our conversation before, um, Ryan, you, like you do a really good job of finding like the balance because you played and like you were good, and you know the balance of all the different things, and you're not like too far in one camp or the other. You're just trying to mix it all together. Is that a is that a fair assessment that you try to be pretty balanced? Yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate the kind words, and um, I think I come from a background where uh, you know, and I think you guys as well. When you were playing your college ball, we didn't have all the stuff. I mean, like a J band wasn't a thing. I remember seeing the yeah. first time I saw a J-Man it was in spring training of 2011. I was like making fun of this kid named Boone Wedding. Like, what are you doing? Like <laughs> pick up the ball and throw, you know, like how crazy does that sound now? So um, I had a very, very old school head coach my first couple of years at Illinois State, Jim Brownlee, um, you know, 75 years old now. And um, he tells you he was in World War One and World War Two and Vietnam. And, uh, he was uh, he was tough, really, really tough, and it was about getting guys out. It was about competing. Uh, it was about being an overall really good pitcher, you know. So I think that kind of morphed me into uh, the pitcher I became, the person I became, and eventually the coach. But um, I kind of saw an opportunity. Um, it's the, at the tail end of my pro career when I got to work with Brett Strom, who uh, is now part of the Astros, um, and uh, like he kind of opened up my eyes to, to a lot of the things that are going on now. And he was kind of on the forefront with that, with Tom house and uh, very, very cool stuff. So when, when I got released and decided to go into coaching, uh, that was something I, I wanted to get into. So 
um, you know, got into got into the cameras, the high speed cameras, and uh, purchased my own Rapsodo back in 2016. And uh, the, the the funny story uh, about that is uh, I was on the phone uh, recruiting Eric Jagers. Eric Jagers, the driveline guy, and uh, really good pitch design. And he was, uh, of course, with the Reds now. And so he he's deciding on where to go to school. He was in a gap year. Um, so I give him a call. Goes really, 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 really well. He's like, Coach, I'm interested. Um, he's like, Do you have Rapsodo? And I was, I had no clue what he was talking about. <laughs> I was like, Oh no, but you know, we're, we're we're working on getting it. You know, it's a little pricey, but like, you know, we'll have it by the time you get here. Okay, sounds great, Coach. So we hang up the phone. We get off. I get on Google. Like, what Rapsodo? What's Rapsodo? <laughs> <laughs> so from there, I was like, Hey, you know what? Like, he ended up going to Iowa. So like, we weren't going to get him anyways. But like. If that was a kid that didn't have that offer from a school like Iowa, like we lose out on that kid because of that. And I was like, I need to learn about this. So, yeah, I think with your players, it's about blending them together, having a good balance and understanding that every single um, tool you have might not be for every pitcher in your program, every player in your program. And certainly we use some of those things more um, than others with certain guys. And uh, I, I hate the sellout mentality, like mutually exclusive. Like you have to be a data-driven, throw-hard tech guy, and you can't care about winning, or or you got to be the old school. Screw this stuff. Like it doesn't work. Um, I, I see I see uh, Bobby on there on Twitter uh, with with Jeff I'm, Fry and, and I'm all there. over it. I scroll past. I never like. I never retweet. I never comment, but I see it. So <laughs> yeah, don't don't Alert comment her. or yeah, you don't want to <laughs> you don't want to tarnish your reputation no, by jumping no, on my just, Twitter. That's that's uh that's the scroll pass. That's where you got to have the feel to scroll pass. Oh yeah, I think that's what about, about every college coach in America tries to do, but I think some can't refrain either. So. It's funny because I do get a lot of messages on the side being like, "I would love to say this and retweet this to like, but I can't because they're college I've said coaches." It to Dan, yeah, I've said that to Dan. I texted Dan like, "Hey, yeah, I just want to let you know I really agree with you. Like, I'm not going to comment on it because I just." It's not worth it. And that's no, you can't. You can't. That's you guys can't. In your position, you can't take a hard line stance one way or the other. You can't really attack anybody. I can. That's why I do it. Well, that's the benefit of your job. <laughs> Bobby's a paid gun for hire. So if you need to criticize right. someone on Twitter, send twenty five dollars yeah. via Venmo uh-huh, to Bobby yeah. Stevens. Yeah, I'll do it for free. I'll do it. For I gotta free. get his number and just just yeah, echo the message from from, from myself. <laughs> You're right. That's fine. <laughs> so speaking of, let, let's start. We're going to cover a couple of things today. We're going to talk about command a bit. We're going to talk about the Black Lives Matter movement a bit, which is which hits home for you a little bit. And let's also talk about, we're going to chat about some technology. So let's start with cameras because we were talking about this off camera. Um, so you guys, you said you just got a Sony RX10, like the Mark IV, which is the most recent uh, yeah. version of that camera. And obviously the Edgertronic is the one that gets so much press. Like it's, ooh, like everyone... But you you don't feel like that's the better camera, is that right? Yeah, and I, I guess I should preface it by saying I've never used an Edgertronic, so like I can't speak to that in, in fairness. But just looking at the video quality um, and the lack of color with the, the Edgertronic, and um, I just think that the the, the Sony RX104 is just night and day better, you know, in terms of pitch quality and all that. So um yeah i mean again i can't i can't speak to it because i haven't used edgertronic but we love the the sony it's unbelievable and um i would highly recommend anybody go get it if you're into pitch design and uh and and, and, you know pitch overlay but we use it for everything we use it for you know mechanical analysis as well not just with our pitchers but with our with our hitters as well yeah for those of you out there uh i just grabbed mine off the shelf this is the sony rx10 
Mark IV, and the, and the Mark IV is just like the fourth version of it. Like, there's like a ten year old camera they update every four years. They don't change the the name of it, but it has a super long zoom. I don't have a battery in it right now, but it's a it's an easy like portable handheld. It's like the size of a DSLR, um, and it has a crazy zoom. So like I've gotten footage. I'm actually going to screen share so people can see like what we're talking about. I think that's helpful. Um, but this is an Instagram video that I took on the Sony RX10 from behind the plate from like 30 rows up at University of Maryland. And this is, I think, 480 frames per second. And it's pretty incredible. Like as you see the pitch coming in, like you can see the spin orientation really, really well. I mean, it slows down. It goes up to a thousand frames per second. That's like, like I said, 480. But I mean, it's pretty remarkable. And you could get this view like this close from over the center field wall. So when you're talking about you know, tech that's like accessible to a, a college, like that's an $1,800 camera. I got mine used for, I think 1200, but I mean, what, what are some of the ways that you guys use it or how do you use it the most? Yeah, I, I would say the, probably the most common way we use it is for, um, the, the pitch analysis, pitch design down in the bullpen, you know, so we're out there in the bullpen, we have our radar guns up, we have our Rapsodo pitching unit out and we have the, uh, the camera set up, you know, behind the pitcher's uh, throwing hand, and we'll zoom in on his hand, and uh, we'll, we'll find the right uh, the right angle we need to get to. And you know, every pitcher is a little different, so you gotta get you gotta get pretty good with that. And sometimes you gotta get creative because of you know the height of the pitcher, the different kind of slot. You gotta. And that's what's cool, I think, about using it is you kind of always experimenting with things and trying new things. And um, essentially, you know, we get in the bullpen, and if we know we have a freshman that comes in and. Uh, it seems like so many guys come in here, young pitchers, and slow, loopy curveball, mm -hmm. low spin, doesn't have true depth to it. Um, it's not going to be a swing and miss pitch. And I, I guess we're kind of a slider program. Um, like we kind of bang the curveballs unless they're really good when they come in and kind of go to something more short and tight, um, a little hybrid cutter slider thing. So uh, we get in the bullpen. Yeah, you know, we go through, get that testing data, see where they're at initially. And um, right away, you'll know. You know, the eyes tell you that too. But like, yeah. hey, Let's take what we see with our eyes and let's pair that up and let's kind of show proof you know, with one of our pitchers to show them that this isn't going to work. Here's why. So let's try to do this. And then it be, kind of comes trial and error in the bullpen. And you throw a pitch and you try a new grip, a different wrist placement. You can see it on a high-speed camera at, yeah, 1,000 frames per second. So when we finally find the one that looks really good, we have better feedback, we utilize that one in the game, and of course, we still have our, our raps out there during an inner squad. We kind of identify, hey, this is the one. These are the metrics. This spin rate, this vertical horizontal break, uh, you know, this spin access. And then from there, we try to repeat it as often as we can. Well, you can't really do that objectively if you don't have high speed video. So, yeah. uh, you know, kind of pairing up with what we what we feel with uh, the the objective video and the objective data with the camera and the rapso unit. And then from there, it turns. Uh, you know, what would be your, your standard 10 to 15, 20 pitch bullpen, monotonous, you know, to something really, really exciting for our guys. And I feel like you accomplish so much on certain days because of this technology. So that's one way we use it. And of course we use it for, uh, for mechanical analysis. And um, it is so unbelievable how clear you can get that shot to be from, you know, in the stands, from on the side view, of course, in game, we can't have anything in the dugout, but, mm -hmm. um, 
we put a couple pitchers on that. I'll teach them how to use it in the fall so that when we get to the get to the season, whether we're home or away, you know, we're getting high-speed video of every single one of our pitchers. And um, I'll tell you this, uh, I think that the scouts really appreciate it because yeah. you, know, you they ask for, hey, coach, you got any video? Yeah. And then you send them something like that. They're like, oh, whoa, what kind of camera is that? Mm-hmm. Tell them, like, right. we don't have that. Like, now I got one of our former players is in uh, player development with the Cubs. So he's the one that kind of told me about the Sony RX-10 III mm-hmm. and uh, showed me some clips. I'm like, that's unbelievable. How much does it cost? He said, oh, it's only you know, a couple thousand. I'm like, okay, like you know, we can do that here. We can figure that out. So, yeah, it's been invaluable for us. It's a uh, really, really, really uh, you know, good value for, for what you get with it. And uh, it's been, been a big part of our program in terms of, uh, you know, improving guys' you know, kind of repertoires and their, and their, their arsenals on the mound. Yeah, and it's funny. I when I was at uh, when I was still back in Bloomington a year ago, I went to a Peoria Chiefs game about like a month before I before I left, and I was getting some footage from the side for for YouTube videos, just like trying to get like little shots of things happening in games. Like if you catch a shortstop doing something in slow motion, you can like talk through it and teach about it. And there was a a Chiefs is either a Chiefs player or a visiting player was like four rows in front of me with the same camera getting footage of all the pictures of the tripod. I was like. Hey, we should be friends, but the, like a lot of the teams have this technology too because it's so, like you said, it's so easy. It's portable. Like you can teach anyone. It's not like this big setup. And again, I don't know about the inner workings of uh, Edgetronic either, but those higher speed cameras are more complex and they require a little more know how and they're expensive. So, yeah, I would, yeah, I think the only the only downside with the the Sony is that. Um, you can probably, if you're in high speed mode, you can probably only get about every other pitch because there is that, yeah. that delayed factor, which, which mm-hmm. is fine. I, I do believe, I think the Edgertronic is about every, every like 10 to 15 seconds you can get a pitch. So about the time, you know, of a, of a guy in the mound. And I think there's a, there's a trigger button you can have, you know, from, you know, from a wireless perspective, but you can be in the dugout, you can have your camera set up back there and click a button from the dugout if you're in an inner squad and nobody even has to run the camera, which is pretty cool. So yeah, um, that's probably one of the benefits of the Edgertronic. So. Yeah, one, and, and to be fair, with a lot of this technology, and you know full well, when stuff is such a long setup, like for example, like you talk about your bullpen setup, but you have to set up Rapsido, you set up your camera. When stuff gets too cumbersome, it just gets hard to do it. Like for me doing like YouTube videos, when I have to like set this up and that up and this up, and, and it's just like, it just doesn't get done, right? And so when you have a camera like the Sony is like pretty nimble because it's like a normal camera. You could just send someone yeah. into, the, into the stands and they could hold it and like get the shot potentially. When it's just easy to use, it just makes everything a lot a lot better. And sometimes like, even if there's superior technology, but it's way more complex and hard to use, it's not better than just like the grab your cell phone camera and get something quick. You know, that's what's still, I mean, cell phone technology is still pretty good, but it lacks the zoom. Yeah. That's the big problem. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, yeah, you can certainly use an iPhone, especially with the new cameras they have on those. Yeah, they're awesome. I, I have a work phone. I have a I have like an iPhone four. Here's my here's my iPhone. Nice four. That's like Bobby. Bobby had a flip yeah, phone. That's what, that's what for they a gave us. Time. So I'm just fortunate to have a work phone. So, but yeah, I, I've seen people do crazy things with iPhone too, and like you know, that's uh, yeah, you just do it the best you can. And obviously, not everybody can afford a, a big expensive camera like that, but you don't need to, and that's the great thing now. So. Well, the Rap Soto is pretty mobile too, isn't it? It's a, it's a kind of like a box almost, a chip yeah. and a triangle, and you can, yeah, you can yeah. kind of use that. Uh, it's not like the Hit Tracks, where Hit Tracks is just a big, bulky. It's like you need a suitcase to drag it around. Yeah, the uh, the Raps, both units, the hitting and the pitching, we have both. Um, 
super portable. So like you can be in the bullpen, use it before a game. If you want to get spin rate data and see what a guy has going on, you know, before an outing, I know that's, uh, I think that's something that some MLB teams have done. I think I've watched games where pre-game bullpen, this guy's a starting pitcher. They have the Rapsodo out there. Just, I guess, go through the checklist, right? Like, okay, this is good. The breaking ball is where it needs to be. The arm slot, because it gives you pitch effects data too. You know, it gives you the arm slots and release, yeah. release point data. So, um, so yeah, the old unit was on the tripod, and that was a little bit of a pain. You know, you had to yeah. take the whole tripod, put it up. Uh, it had to be six feet from the tip of home plate. Yeah. So, like, that's that's pretty close to your catcher's feet setup. And mm-hmm. uh, we had so many times where a ball goes into the dirt. They go to block naturally, and they kick the tripod down. thing falls yeah. over. You're praying you didn't just break your four thousand dollar wraps with us. Mm-hmm. So I went to the ground unit, which is awesome. Um, yeah, we had yeah we had a showcase yesterday um, and Tuesday out here, and we have the the hitting unit facing the hitters, and we have the pitching unit facing the pitchers. And um, I think that's a, it's a selling point for sure in recruiting. Um, and if for nothing else, if you don't believe in it, don't know anything about it, you don't care about it, it is cool. It's pretty dang cool to get out there and see exactly how your ball is spinning and uh, you know see what kind of and a jump you have off the bat in terms of your, your exit below and, and all that. So, yeah, yeah. it's good stuff. <laughs> so let's shift to, because you were, and I, I saw this graphic recently. Like, I think I was, I don't know if I follow Illinois State Baseball, but they tweeted a graphic of their all-time leaders of walks per nine, and it was like Ryan Copeland, Ryan Copeland, Ryan Copeland, yeah. Ryan Copeland. <laughs> and we were just talking about command with uh, Liam Bowen, who's the head coach of my alma mater, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And a really, really good talk about all that. Um, so you could always command the ball well because all of your, it said you're like all of your numbers, pretty much every year of your college career at the Division One level, you were sub two walks per nine innings, which is impeccable, obviously. Yeah. And uh, as far as talking about Rapsodo and technology and all this stuff that you can try to tinker and make things better, what is your opinion on command? Yeah, I think uh, it's the enigma. It is far more difficult to train command than it is to train velocity. I think um, you see that, right? And and again, you get back into mutual exclusivity. Like people think you can't try to train both. And there's this debate on social media all the time, you know, with guys about if you can throw this fastball with better command, why don't you? But like that's assuming that you can improve it. And like you get into feel, Right? Like the feel, you know, the feel for your hand, the feel for your body in space, you know, the more technical term, proprioception, of course. But like, I think that it came for me from the countless hours and hours and hours as an eight year old, nine year old, 10 year old, 11, 12. Uh, when you're really in that motor, you know, motor learning phase of your life and development as a, as a child, playing catch with my dad and playing catch with my friends. And I grew up in a cul-de-sac where we played tennis ball, baseball every single day of the summer. And then you took a couple hours off and you went and played your little league game, your house league game, you know, at 6 PM. And like, it's just all we did. It's all we did. Um, so like, I think that helps a ton. I've always been able to throw anything exactly where I want. And like, I, I can't really explain it, but like, there's certain things I think some people can just do and feel with the baseball that others can't. And it's like sometimes with our pitchers, like, are you guys, you could, you could feel like they're throwing the ball with a, with a mitten on their hand. It's like, they don't feel their hand. Whereas like one of my pitchers can teach me a grip or wrist placement or what they do with a certain ball. And like, we could get out the wraps and I bet I could duplicate it like within five pitches. Like 
yeah. almost the same exact metrics. And like, I honestly don't know the answer. Um, we try, we try a lot of different things. I think the most basic watered down answer is your catch play. But like, we see a lot of people play good catch and they're accurate and then they get on the mound and like, they just, they can't throw the ball where they want to. And then, then you get into the, you know, the argument of control versus command, you know, control being able to throw the ball, you know, where you want in the zone. And then within the zone is more command. Like I, I can throw the ball on this part of the plate up, down, in, out. And like, that's where, how many guys, you know, you think about how many guys in the big leagues even have that. I mean, I think when Dallas Keuchel won the Cy Young in 2015, I thought I read a stat that the average miss of his location was around 10 inches. And that's a Cy Young winner with good stuff with, mm-hmm. by all accounts, you know, really, really good command in the major leagues with far less velocity. And like, he still misses a spot by 10 inches every time on average. Like, so I don't really know the answer, um, but I think we're trying to figure it out. You know, we do stuff with command baseballs. Um, we try to do anything that we can get. What is a command baseball? Um, so the, uh, so driveline came out with baseballs. Um, and of course, part of their weighted baseball sets, um, that are actually bigger and smaller. Um, so they actually have a little degree of, uh, you know, different weight to them in addition to different size, you know? So it's like you pick up a baseball and then you pick up a rock, you pick up a baseball, you pick up a, mm-hmm. you know, a golf ball and you're trying to throw the ball at the same exact spot every single time. Um, your, your body plays tricks on you, I think is the kind of the way to describe it. And it takes a ton of, you know, quote unquote feel, you know, proprioception ability to, to be able to throw that ball where you want to. And uh, we try things like that. Um, we do it with weighted balls as well, you know, getting in the bullpen and throwing, you know, at, uh, you know, 70, 80%, you know, so we're making sure we're, we're staying safe, but throwing a six ounce ball and, and then a four, then a five, then a seven, then a six, and trying to throw the same pitch where you want to go with different weights, you know? So like there's things that we try. Um, but I, I mean, I don't know that I know the answer. I don't know that anybody does because why wouldn't we have figured that out yet? Like, mm-hmm. Why are walk rates at an all time high? Well, clearly there's a correlation between that and the increase in pitching velocity. You know, is the pitching better now than in the, in the seventies and eighties? I think absolutely. But those guys don't tell you that they think it's worse. So like, I don't know. What, yeah. What's your thought? So I heard that it's it's now five walks per nine is the the division one average at least. I mean, is that is that the same in, in division? Sounds two? about right. Yeah, like I I know, like and like we're usually in the middle of the pack with that. Like you know, and that's weird for me because like that's not who I was as mm-hmm. as a pitcher. And I think um, the the best advice, some of the best advice I got from a, a former a former coach of mine was that you know, never assume that things are going to be as easy for other people as they were for you yeah. and vice versa. There's going to be guys you coach that can do things you couldn't do. So the worst thing you can do is go recruit a bunch of players that you think are going to be like you. Because you know, when I go recruit, I would love to have a left-handed pitcher coming in here as a freshman. That's 5'11", that's 85, 88, you know, that can absolutely pound the zone. And they can throw the both sides of the play, three, four pitch mix, control the running game. They're athletic. That guy doesn't really exist that often. <laughs> yeah. And like, I know that. And if he does, he, he's going to a power five, right? Like, because they can they can see that and they know there's going to be a little velo jump. Um, it's easier to take the 6'2", 6'3", guy that has a 90-mile-an-hour arm and a little lack of command and just hope over the course of his you know time you know in college that he's going to find the zone enough that the stuff yeah. is going to overtake. He's going to walk some guys. Um, but, you know, he's going to have swing and miss stuff. The ball's not going to be put in play a whole lot. 
his opponent batting average is going to be down. So in turn, his whip is about where it needs to be with the walks even being high. And uh, I think that guy's a lot easier to recruit, a lot easier to find. And like we have guys yeah. like that. But yeah, for a guy that, you know, went an entire season, I think I walked nine guys in the 20, uh, 2008 season in, in around 100 innings. Um, like that's very frustrating for me sometimes. But I remind myself it's a different time. And it's, it's, it's not as easy as throwing, hey, throw strikes. Like, hey, they're trying to throw strikes. There's, there's, there's something going on in the body and in, in the mind and the hand that's not allowing them to do that. So, yeah. One thing that I found, Bobby, go ahead. I was going to say throw strikes when you hear the parents yeah. yelling from the stands. <laughs> but it's part of it, too, I, we talked about this with Liam. Like I, I mentioned, I think part of it is attitude. It's like stop trying to nibble off the plate and stop trying to throw yeah. your, your two seam on the corner. Like throw it in the middle. Let it run. Let it run to a spot. Don't try and be perfect with it and it ends up being a ball. And it's not necessarily that it wasn't a good pitch. It was that the hitter just – like, he doesn't want to swing at an inside fastball, and then it runs off the plate, and now it's a ball. Whereas if you throw it down the middle, like, yeah, it's, his eyes are going to light up, and then he's going to jam himself. Like, it's more of an – I feel like a, a lot of it is attitude with – especially with – I work a lot with uh, younger guys. Like, I'm not in – I don't do as much with college-level athletes. I definitely don't do a lot with pitchers. But if I ever am coaching a game and I have to go to the mound or talk, it's like, hey, let's let's focus on – you know, let's pound the strike zone and let them make some mistakes. Like you're making all the mistakes for them. Let them make a few mistakes and get a little bit of confidence. Like I try and preach confidence, but it's more of an attitude. I think than people realize when you want to pound the strike zone, throw strikes because guys are taught to hit the corners, stay low in the zone. And then you try and be so fine with it. You end up one Oh, two Oh, three Oh to pitcher or to, to good hitters. And then those are the best counts of hitting, obviously. Yeah, I agree. And we didn't end up covering that in our, our talk with, with him. But, you, I mean, you're right. And, and I think the weird thing with youth players is they don't learn from almost anybody that there's more to the plate than just the middle and the corners. And they don't realize as much. And I, I explain this to all of them, that there's middle halves, thirds, and corners. And really, like, the halves, you, you watch big leaguers, their catcher's setting up to the half way more than you realize. Like, outer half first pitch, inner half. Because they know there's, there's going to be some leeway. And outer half becomes outer third when you miss that way, right? Like, Dallas Keuchel knows he's going to miss off the plate. So, if he catches outer half first pitch, that gives him plenty of room to just, all right, boom, I hit the corner. If I miss, right. it's outer half first, first pitch, big deal. He grounds out anyway. And kids don't realize that. They get one strike, and now they're on the black. And then... You know, by just like the law of averages, if you had a, if you threw a thousand pitches, you're going to have a, a spread, right? A, a what do they call that? I know I'm blanking at the moment because early. Yeah. But you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so if you're on the split, you're splitting the black. Half of those are going to be balls. Half of them are going to be strikes just from random chance. Assuming all of your misses are relatively constant, it'll probably be more like an egg shape. But you know, and so then if you like, okay, let's take that grouping. That's the word I was looking for. You take that grouping, your heat map and move it to the centered over the half, now you throw 67% strikes because less of that grouping is off the plate. So, Bobby, you're 100% correct that there's a strategy part to it. Like, so many kids are, boom, strike one, on the black, boom, ball one. Now they just come back over the middle of the plate. It's like, you should have just gone middle, then the outer half, now you're 0-2, then you can screw around and, like, and you're good. So, I mean, do you see a lot of that, Ryan? Like, guys come in with, like, a, a lack of strike zone awareness? Yeah, no, that's a, Bobby, that's a great point. Um, you know, that's a philosophical thing, and that's mm-hmm. what we hear. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I might have let that slip past me. Um, we teach our pitchers to throw the ball down the middle of the plate. Like, I am not, I'm not lying to you. If it's 0-0 or 
or even 0-1, 1-1, our catcher does not move. We give ourselves what we call margin for error, mm-hmm. right? Like you're not good enough. No one in the big leagues is good enough to actually physically throw the ball exactly where they want it every single time. It actually probably really happens. You know, it, I watch games tonight and I'll keep track, but like the catcher sets up right off the outside corner. Like how many times does the pitcher actually throw the ball? And there's very minimal glove movement. I mean, almost never. Yeah. Those are the best throwers in the world. Uh, the most accurate throwers in the world. And, and they still struggle with that. So we have our catcher set up right down the middle of the plate and we have like our pitch calling zones you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, zero. Um, but like, yeah, we want to give ourselves margin for error. So you can throw your 91 mile an hour two seam right down the middle and, and you just let that thing play to the, to the arm side. And yeah, you give yourself room to miss. And all of a sudden, Sometimes the ball's on the black anyways, you know, but mm-hmm. if you're trying to be on the corners all the time uh, with the amount of yanks you get at this level, the amount of times that people fly open, they lose themselves on the front side. Um, yeah. It, the, the pitch grouping is going to be all over the place. And um, like with our breaking balls, we have two zones. Throw your breaking ball as hard and as late and sharp as you possibly can with the most spin right down the middle and then do the same exact thing and throw it on top of the plate. That's it. Yeah. We do not try to locate we will try to locate fastball. You know, you got to pitch inside and you got to miss intentionally in sometimes. But um, when we try to throw our, our changeups and our, our breaking balls, we focus on the pitch quality, right? Like the DNA of the pitch is something that we talk about. And like, we all have DNA, you know, Dan, Bob, you guys look the way you do because of your DNA. And, and same for me, pitches have DNA. They have pitch characteristics. The kind of cool thing about pitching is you can change them a little bit. You can alter your DNA with your pitches. So like, Let's find out what the DNA of your pitches are. Let's understand how they break, how they move, when they're at their best, throw them right down the middle of the plate. So we just train the stuff, and then we rely on the movement of the pitch and the pitch profile to, to get the hitter out. And uh, I think the best example to, to show pitchers, especially young pitchers, is that watch a college BP. Like, we won't talk about the big leagues. Those guys are so special. But watch a good college program take batting practice – Every fastball is 56 miles an hour right down the middle of the plate. And how many miss hits you still see? I mean, it's unbelievable. Like yeah. we really swing it here and we get frustrated with our guys sometimes like, Hey man, like, what are you doing? Why are you popping the ball up into the top of the cage? Hitting's hard. It's really, really hard. And I think if you take that philosophy and make pitchers understand that um, you can really, really help yourselves and cut down your walks, increase, you know, your weak contact, um, have a little more presence about you. So, yeah, I completely agree with that. Some of it isn't about proprioception and command training. It's about philosophy. And I think sometimes the disconnect, I believe, is we have pitchers with better stuff than ever. Um, I don't think that's debatable. We have pitchers that throw harder than ever. That's not debatable. Mm-hmm. But we also have the old school mindset of throw down in the zone. You got to be on the black. You can't be in the middle of the plate coming up as a youth. So like you're pairing a philosophy of, in terms of how you attack the zone with a completely different philosophy that doesn't yeah. work for what pitchers are trying to do now. And they clash yeah. as opposed to throwing everything down the middle of the plate. And if you throw 97, Hey, I'll take my chances that it's going to be hard, hard to square up for any hitter, you know? Yeah. That's a good yeah, point. I, I want to ask you guys both. Cause I'm not a pitcher. Um, so if I talk pitching to anybody, it's more like how to attack a hitter, like what I would do if I was like what I would expect as a hitter and then, you know, do the opposite. But 
So we've got a lot of guys like they'll throw first pitch and a guy will yank one 350 pull side foul. And then I'll ask the guy, okay, what, what should you throw here again? And I always get the answer. It's always, well, I should, I'm going to go soft, something soft away. And my answer is always, well, he just showed you what he's going to do with that that pitch. Throw it in again. I'm like, let him give you another strike. Give you strike two. I'm like, keep going in there until he proves he can make an adjustment. Is that, am I wrong there? I'm looking for more validation, like whether or not I'm telling kids the right thing or not. Well, I'll I'll start because it's funny you started, you mentioned pitching inside because that's a really, another good piece to your previous question, which is knowing like strategy stuff because when I would do simulated games with, you know, kids as we're getting close to high school season and we, you know, have fake batters. I'm like, all right, this guy's got a really fast bat, really likes to ambush and really likes to pull the ball. Like how, you know, how do you want to pitch him? What do you want to start him off with? And a lot of times kids in that situation, you know, or say that the kid's got this guy's got a slow bat and likes to go opposite field. Like, oh, I'll go, I'll go fastball inside first pitch. Cause I know he's trying to hit the ball the other way. That seems to make sense in theory, but Ryan, you'd probably agree. Do hitters swing at pitches on the inner third? inside on the first pitch they take that stuff at least in my yeah. experience they don't like to swing in like in in on when they don't have to like oh oh one oh you throw it inside they're taking it unless they're like ready to ambush something but you take most most hitters in my experience inside first pitch is really hard to get a swing and umpires don't like to call it so if you go inside third or, or farther in first pitch you're pretty much setting yourself up to be ball one whereas if you get a strike under your belt and now you go inside oh one that hitter is like uh, i probably need a swing at that that seems close out of his hand then they're more inclined to help you like that's just like a basic strategy thing that i figured out because i pitched inside a lot i had to to be successful and i knew i'm not going in early i've got to get ahead then if i go in later this guy is going to help me by swinging at that pitch that maybe is a borderline ball and that maybe the umpire doesn't want to call anyway and now i get a i get a strike because he's helping me by swinging. How do you feel about early inside inside pitches, Ryan? Yeah. Uh, I, well, you know, you talk to you talk to your hitters and you talk to your pitchers and um, you have those conversations with them and like the the one thing you find no matter who's hitting no matter how talented they are is in any count they hate the ball inside. If it's firm and it's in, um, whether it's for a strike, you know, right on the inner half or it's you know in off their hands, um, they hate it. They cannot stand it. They don't want to hit that. Now, of course, there's the there's the times where hitters will ambush and they'll cheat mm-hmm. and they'll try to get to that ball. Um, then they still got to be pretty dang good to be able to keep that ball fair and get on the barrel. Um, again, if there's assuming there's a base of velocity. So, yeah, um, that that's a common take. And I think then there's the middle ground. You know, the the one strike pitch where like they feel like they're kind of in swing mode now a little bit, especially mm-hmm. if they're behind in the count. And then I think it reverts back to a no strike count with two strikes, as in you get a lot of takes with two strikes and you throw a fastball in. It is just out of the hand. It just doesn't look right. It doesn't look yeah. good. Um, some of the best pitchers we've had um, have, have been able to do that really, really well. And uh, we had Andrew Dean was drafted out of here two years ago to the Padres. And um, that's all we did together. Like when in doubt, we just throw a fastball in at, you know, at 90, 91. And uh, I would have loved to see his his opponent batting average on, on that pitch. And um, it's just almost an unhittable pitch. No hitters want to swing at that. So, yeah, that's uh, I think that's the that's where you get into the advanced, you know, the ability to pitch is like we see so many fastballs away and fastballs away. Mm-hmm. And like as a right-handed pitcher to a right-handed hitter, you have to learn how to throw extension side and be able to 
to be able to throw a strike on the outer half. It's uh, I would say it's it's one of the tougher pitches to drive if it's in the right location. But um, if you're out there all single day, um, you know hitters start to pick up on that. Scouting reports get out. So yeah. Um, yeah. Pitching inside was huge for me. It's a big part of our staff and, and our culture and our what we try to accomplish. And um, that's not easy, though. A lot of guys really, really struggle with it. And there's a fine line between trying to throw in and uh, for strikes, trying to throw in for effect. Uh, but a lot of times, guys, they just they yank the ball and they can't get in there as a righty. And as a lefty, they, they pull off and it ends up being middle away. So, yeah, uh, pitching inside is probably one of the uh, the hardest things to teach. But I think it is a mindset, kind of like Bobby mentioned about the strikes on it. I think it is a little philosophical as well. Yeah, and and Bobby, to, to your point more specifically, one of my like biggest, and this is still like a really vivid memory for me because it was when I was really starting to learn to pitch in summer ball because we had an old like salty left-handed um, like minor league and indie ball veteran as as my uh, my manager. And one of the best hitters in the league was a guy who was coming from Louisville. I don't. I think he went to Northwest Shoals after that. Like he was like a Louisville first year, then like bounced out. But super fast hands, and he was crowding the plate. And this was a guy that would just like would hurt you. I mean, he was just lightning fast bat. And so he wanted to pull everything. He would not hit a ball to the opposite field the entire season. But he was hitting like 360 against everyone else and hitting like 220 against our team because our coach is like, look. I know it seems like because he wants to pull the ball down the line, you want to stay away from him. He's like, that's wrong. He's like, he's trying to pull outer half pitches. That's why he crowds the plate a little bit. That's what he's looking to do. We're feeding him nothing but inside fastballs. And we're all like, okay. So the staff bought in and everyone's just pounding this dude in. We're hitting him, like not trying to hit him, but just like you're going to hit him when you throw them all in. And he's just roping balls foul. And it did. It took some conviction because I was like, uh, and he hits a missile foul and you're like i kind of want to go away nope go back in and pulls another missile foul and he's like getting frustrated because he knows he can't keep it fair and you just keep it in there it's like he can't get you it's like having like a you know like in a fight where like the bully like holds your and you like can't reach the bully you know that kind of thing it's like he literally can't (laughs) keep that pitch fair because he's not going to change his swing to in inside out it or like get it to the big part of the ballpark and we literally just own this kid all summer by pitching which is that way inside which definitely seems counterintuitive to everybody else and then once in a while once he's like really on the ropes freeze him low and away and he just shakes his head and just walks back but i learned a lot from that because it it was counterintuitive and you kind of needed somebody to say hey this is this is it seems like the wrong thing to do but it's it's the way we're going to go and you'll see how it works and it really is fascinating just that like back and forth with hitters and and some of the, like I said, counterintuitive approaches that pitchers take. So you're well, not. It's like hard. I feel like it's hard. It's hard as a just a player in general to watch somebody have some success. What success I would consider is like barreling a ball off of you, but yeah. it's foul. Yeah. And then to think that that's not the correct, like that is the correct thing to do. Like if you hit it foul, it's so hard to adjust. Like especially reverse it if you're throwing fastballs away and he's just peppering the the opposite field dugout stick with that pitch until he shows you he can at least speed up the bat enough to keep it between the lines if he can't do it there's no reason to speed it up for him Mm -hmm. so i try and tell guys like hey they're giving you tons of information whether it's how they take a pitch or how they swing at a pitch or where the ball goes when they foul it off take that info and use it like don't make don't overcomplicate it like the pitch 
you just threw is also a good pitch that next pitch. Like you can double up, you can triple up. You don't need to just because you have three pitches doesn't mean you need to mix and match every pitch. Like it's okay to pitch with just your fastball until someone proves they can hit your fastball. Yeah. And I don't, and this is coming from a non pitching guy by any straight. I'm just in my, my, I played shortstop. So As like mayor when of Chicago, I'm, you have to do it all. You have to be, when you're in the political scene, you gotta, you know, you gotta beg, gotta juggle out of different buckets here. But as a shortstop, I watched the pitch calling, you know, the whole game, every, every game I ever played. And you're, and I'm, I remember thinking like, this is not the right pitch. You know, why are we calling this pitch? Like what's the, and sometimes I'd be right. Sometimes I'd be wrong, but I, like I'm learning cause I'm basically in it with the pitcher and the catcher as a shortstop. Like if you're a middle guy, you're basically in that pitch calling sequence the whole game. So yeah. you learn a lot by watching guys that were good calling games, got watching guys that were terrible calling games. Like it, it's, it's helpful to know the pitches and kind of like see the results, talk it through. Yeah. Ryan, what's, what's your guys stance on, on calling games? Like how does it work at your program? Yeah, so I I I've called pitches most of the time here, um, going back to 2016, and that's something I always it's I always fight that I always fight like I know the arguments for I know the arguments against I know you're a big proponent uh, for not calling pitches and mm-hmm. uh, um, yeah and like I I absolutely see both sides. Um, I would say our catchers have the ability to um, call pitches at certain times um, and. What we, what we try to do is if, even if I'm calling pitches in a game, um, like there is still is coaching going on. Cause I think the biggest argument is like, we'll let them learn, let them develop. And like, what if they have a chance to go play pro ball? And like, well, like, I think that's an outdated argument because like pro catchers are essentially calling pitches based off of like data now, like, if it gets to this point, this is what we do. And I, Bobby touched on it, and I, I agree with Bobby. I think a lost art, and we talk about data collection, what about the data that a hitter gives you from their swings and their takes and, and the way that they hit the ball and what they're trying to accomplish? And, like, that's a big part of pitch calling as well. Um, I guess the argument I would make is, like, I don't, I don't necessarily know what my strengths and weaknesses are, Coach. I probably have to talk to other people. Um, I think my biggest strength is taking what I did as a pitcher with for most of my career underwhelming velocity, but being able to pitch at a high level in a, in a, in a really good baseball conference um, and in getting really good hitters out and taking that knowledge and, and helping our guys get hitters out in game by controlling that stuff, but also still trying to coach them up as well. Um, and I guess the, uh, you know, the, the one argument again is, is well, they're not necessarily getting to do it themselves, right? They're not getting to fail themselves. Um, and I think, and I, and again, I get the argument of like that, that's what you should want for your pitchers. But like, I think it's a lot easier said when you're not a college coach being paid to win games. Like, I think that if uh, someone like me is able to see your side and understand it and appreciate it and respect it and like kind of agree in some ways, it feels like the other side isn't that way. Like, no, you should never let them do that. And I guess the argument is, okay, if I have two catchers, neither of them are going to be pros, which actually is not the case on our roster right now. We have two pretty good ones. Um, but let's just say we have two guys that are really good catchers, not going to be pros. I guess the argument is like, well, then what if they call their own pitches and whether they're good or bad, what are we letting them develop for? They're going to go get their MBA and go work in accounting. I mean, like, that's the argument I guess I would make. Like, they're here for four years. Are we supposed to let them be – very average and 
alternate pitch calls for no rhyme or reason, not double up, not triple up, not have the wherewithal to understand the scouting report um, while everything else is going on for a couple of years and we lose some games in turn. Not that coaches don't lose games. That happens, I am sure. Mm-hmm. I have, no, I, I have I have called the wrong pitch in the wrong time. Absolutely. And uh, I think the, the communication aspect starts with your relationships with your players. I mean, I can think of specific times where I called the fastball in and I guessed wrong. The guy was all over it. I thought we could beat him. You talk to your catcher and, hey, you know, was that where it needed to be? Yeah, yeah, Cope, it was. You walk over to your pitcher, hey, that's my fault. That's my fault. That's on me. Keep going, like, big man. Yeah, we're good. Um, and I think, like, again, this seems like to be like the, the running theme, mutual exclusiveness. Like, I don't think it has to be one way or the other um, because I do see both sides. So, like, we've called pitches here for the most part. I've done it. I think um, it's a strength of mine as a pitching coach. I'm also very, very aware that, like, a lot of people don't believe in it, and they have really good reasons as well. I guess that's the best way I could describe that. Yeah. Well, and, and you and I have both played, and Bobby as well, have played with pitchers who don't call their own game very well in pro ball, right? That's like, how, are, how have you been around for five years and you still throw that on that count to that guy? You're like, what, what's wrong with you? And it's like they don't ever really learn. And those guys become college coaches, and then they're calling other kids' games, and you wonder, okay. And that's part of my point is like, there's no certification test. There's no checks and balances. Like half the programs in the country lose. There's no certification. Like, that might be coming. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> I'll certify you. Bobby. Bobby, Bobby's yeah. going to do that. Yeah. I'll certify you. Pitch calling. <laughs> the, the Bobby man. Stevens, certified pitch caller on, on your Twitter bio. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, and I get that. So it's, it's, uh, it is. There's definitely a lot on both sides. Um, and you know what's really interesting? Jumping back to command, and you threw from a lower arm slot, right? Yeah, like pretty Probably. low three quarter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't it bizarre though? And I had this thought this past summer as I was throwing BP to my guys. Isn't it weird? And this, I think this comes back to what you said about some of the playground stuff is that you can be on the mound and I'm just like, I'm going to mix in a side, like a, a submarine pitch. Yeah. And as you're about to do that, you like get this feeling in your body that even though like, I specifically remember this moment from last summer where I was about to do this. And I'm like, I know how to do this and I know how to throw this for a strike. And I feel like that's, it's truly bizarre to think I haven't thrown a ball sidearm from a pitching mound. I, and I don't know how long, right? I like literally never do that. And it's yet I am going to throw this ball for a strike. And then as I throw it, it's close. And then I throw another one and I make an adjustment and it's a strike. Like that ability is, yeah. is baffling when you really think about it, that a human can just be like, eh, I'm just going to do this. And I'm going to no, still know where it goes. Do you feel like young players, lack that do you feel like infielders like kids who are more well-rounded maybe as youngsters develop that like the fact that you're playing shortstop and your pitcher gives you more of that proprioception the ability to make adjustments yeah, yeah I, I think so and uh while I, I think the play as many sports thing is uh is good but overplayed i think i, I think agree. it does make sense for people we've, we've had this conversation yeah. like it does you no know, good to play four sports and be bad at all of them like mm-hmm. those you can just play baseball and be average, like just play baseball and be average. And you can play pickup basketball on your own and football and all that. But um, yeah, it it's, it's fascinating because like you, somebody with a lot of feel that throws a ton of strikes, you can take an entire pitching staff and let's say you're their coach. Right. And you're like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to emulate your mechanics, your mechanics, mm-hmm. your mechanics, your mechanics. I'll throw here, 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 here. I'll close my eyes and open them. I'll do a little shimmy like Marcus Stroman. And I will still throw more strikes than you. 
And it's like, that's what we got. Yeah. We just talked about it. Like, how can somebody explain that? And like, it's, I don't know the answer. I'm not smart enough. Yeah. Like, that's a thing. Like, mm-hmm. why can Marcus Stroman do that? And like, you have some pitchers that just can't even throw the same pitch twice in a row in the same spot. And like, I think, I think being a young kid that like, I don't know. I think we're all pretty similar in age. Like, I just know the way that I know we grew up and like, this is old man on the porch kind of thing, I guess. But like, <laughs> yeah. we're outside all the time, all the time. Um, and it's not just like video games. Like that's not the only culprit. It's a different world. Like it's less safe now. It is like, um, but like we were outside all the time, running around, playing ghosts in the graveyard, skipping oh, yes. rocks, right? Like playing pickup baseball and then playing tackle football and you got to play quarterback. And I think like if you're, you have some, some level of athleticism as it is as a kid, and then you just develop, further develop it by doing all those different things and constantly being outside. Like one thing that I, I've talked about with a close friend of mine, have you ever noticed that like we talk about injury prone athletes, but especially like in falling sports, certain people know how to fall better than others. Like you ever play with somebody and pick up basketball and like they, they always roll their ankle. They always fall when they try to get a rebound and the other yeah. guy doesn't, or he falls, but he knows how to land. Right. Like, that's something nobody talks about, but like hmm. I see it when we play pick up basketball as coaching staff in the off season. Like, and I think that's a whole nother level of proprioception, yeah. like in injury prone athletes, like they just, they don't have a feel for their body in space like the other guy does. And that of course ties right into, you know, being able to throw something exactly where you want. And like whoever comes up with the answer to that, like they're, they're yeah. going to be, well, I remember, I, I remember this moment. I think it was two summers ago. We were playing a, a, a small school from Illinois, like a team that my team should have like destroyed, right? And I'm watching my pitcher. He went like two innings, walked five or six. I had to pull him, and I'm watching him throw hard with like good standard, like clean, nice mechanics. This is, I mean, this is a good pitcher who will play in college. He's got a really good arm. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know his name after the, after the, the show. Yeah. Um, and I just watch him and I'm, I'm, I'm watching him walk people. I, we had a couple of mound visits and I'm like, would I have done anything different with him all winter? No. Does he look good? Yes. Does he have the mechanics he needs to throw strikes? Absolutely. He looks every bit the part. And then on the other side, we played this team from a small town that had like 10 kids. The kid has terrible mechanics throwing slow pounds the strike zone yeah uh, pounds the strike zone and i just vividly remember this yeah and i'm like it just isn't mechanics it just isn't if it was it wouldn't be like this you know and it's just uh it it, like you you said it feels like a cop-out it feels like you wish you had an answer but when you have enough moments of those watching kids and like you said it's just what is it it's it's something is it the hours that you spend like I feel like kids today, like it's, yeah, it's not just video games, but the amount that they use their mind and, uh, and how little they might use their body. Like I've got kids that come to practice and that's probably their only active activity, like physical activity all week. And it's where like, like Ryan said, like he's out playing tackle football and then they're playing lob, you know, tennis ball, baseball in the cul-de-sac. I, I remember being outside every single day throwing a rubber ball against my stairs yeah. and whether or not, I mean, that's, I'm logging hours outside, but I'm, I mean, the amount of my arms got 
I would say 10 times the amount of throws at 14 years old than my current 14 U players had. Yeah, it's probably And that's true. not, and it's just, I mean, it's not to say that they're not, a lot of them aren't talented or as athletic or more athletic than I was, but the amount of hours I've logged and I've heard people say this about kids from Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico that like their physical maturity and the amount of ground balls that they've taken, Dan, you've talked about this, mm-hmm. like the amount of ground balls, a 12 year old, uh, Dominican player has taken is got to be infinitely more than a 12 year old American kid. And it's just, and that, that's not a, a tried and true, like hundred percent, but 99% of those kids down there, that's all they're doing is taking ground ball after ground ball. So they're yeah, hundred percent. I mean, yeah, their actions just they're look just advanced. different. Mm-hmm, yeah, for sure. Well, Ryan, I want to, want to switch gears. Yeah. Um, Cause we want to talk about before we wrap up here, the, uh, the black lives matter movement, and uh so like what have you guys done as a team to talk about that um how has it affected you personally like we both all three of us have been through pro ball and seen that there's definitely some of that going on like there is still racism in the clubhouse and teams and i shared my perspective but what's uh what's been your take and what have you guys done as far as all that yeah when uh when we were at the, the height of that with the the protesting and, and then turned to, to riots there back in uh, May, May and June, um, I actually had a few players reach out to me individually, you know, like coach, you've seen what's going on. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, we'll pick up the phone. Like we just have a conversation, you know, and I think that's where it all starts. Like there, there are very few people in this country that can just have a conversation. Um, and it's like, you know, you have to be able to have a conversation uh, communicate your points, understand that maybe the person you're talking to might disagree with you. And like, that's okay. Like we can still all be okay. We can still respect each other and just try to gain a different, um, a, a different perspective. So um, we have a black player. Um, we have an African American player. And uh, so when that was all going on, he's, he's a Chicago kid. I reached out to him. Um, I just, you know, and like, I, I kind of, went back and forth to be honest. Now it looks like, well, of course you got to reach out to him. Right. But like at that time I was just like, is he going to take that differently than I want him to take it? Like mm-hmm. I want him to know I care about him. I want him to know that like I'm here for him. So I called him and uh, you know, Hey, you know, I, I just want to, I want to check in with you and see how you're doing. And um, right away you could tell how much it meant to him. Um, not that I can ever understand what he was going through, um, and, and not that I ever will. Uh, and certainly I haven't lived a day in his shoes and, um, the things that he's probably been through as, uh, as a black man in, in, in the United States, um, I can't relate to it, but I can try to understand it. And, uh, it was really, really important for me to know that, um, I was there for him. And, uh, if he needed to talk to somebody about anything regarding, you know, the stuff going on, um, I was here for him. And, so then I made the decision. I talked to some people. Um, I talked to my former boss, um, who's now at Lenore Ryan. And um, he was like, yeah, you know, we're going to meet as a, as, a, as a team on Zoom. And we're going to talk about what's going on in our country. And I was like, okay, like that, that's, that's, a, that's a tough thing to do. Because, like, it's not fun to talk about. But, like, I think it's our duty to talk about that stuff. Like, if you ignore it and you just pretend it doesn't exist and you pretend that – systemic racism isn't a thing in this country like you are just as guilty as everyone else um and that's that's my opinion i'm very strong on that so 
Um, we got together. We had a, about an hour Zoom meeting. We brought in somebody from our campus that works in the diversity center. Um, I wanted to have our players hear from a voice um, of somebody who probably has a little more, a uh, little more experience with everything that was going on. And it was, uh, it was fantastic. And uh, I had my talking points and um, I wanted to be clear that this is not about sides. This is not about left, right, conservative, liberal. It's not. It's about human beings being treated um, the way that they deserve to be treated um, and acknowledging the history of our country and the racist history of our country that you cannot deny. And uh, clearly things have gotten much better when you look back two, three, four hundred years. But have they gotten to where they need to be? Not even close. And uh, um, it really hit home with me. My girlfriend is black and uh, you know, she um, she had some really, really tough days some really tough nights um, that really, really hard on her. And I think um, I got to see how people were reaching out to her, but really didn't know what to say, how to say it. And uh, people were leaning on her to give them like advice on how they should act. And I know that she thought that was really unfair because like, I think if you're a, you're a black person in this country, like you just, you just want to be treated like white people have in this country forever. So um, yeah, it was really, really close to me. It still is. I think uh we need to keep speaking up about it. We need to, we can't let this go away until things, uh, things get better and, um, and, and understand that, you know, there, there is things that we can do. And, uh, one of the most powerful things that I did with my girlfriend, uh, we went to a protest here in downtown Springfield. I had, I, if you would have said to me five years ago, like, Hey, you're going to go to a black lives matter protest, um, in support of, you know, the, these black men that and black women that have been killed by the police, um, in recent times, um, I thought you were crazy. And uh, I think that one of the things that I've stepped back and gained perspective on is like, I've changed. And I think for the better, I remember five, six, 10 years ago, not caring about any of this stuff. It didn't matter to me. Um, and then like a switch flip got flipped and I don't know what it was. It, it, it wasn't necessarily dating my girlfriend. I think it happened a little bit before that where like I changed. I, my perspective changed and all that stuff. And I remember the Ferguson riots and, and, and the, uh, the Baltimore riots and the protests and like kind of shunning them. Like, what are they doing? Like I admit to that. And then like, here we are five, six, seven years later. And like, I can't believe I thought like that, but I think that's a good thing. Cause I think it shows you that you can change. Like you don't have to be set in your ways. You can try to gain a different perspective. So yeah, it, it's really, really important to me. Um, it, it's a, it's obviously very, very uncomfortable to talk about. I'm sure there's people listening right now that are like, Hey, we were just having a great conversation about pitching and baseball. And, and like, why did you do this? But like, you have to keep pushing on through that. You have to, you have to get people to understand that we cannot stop talking about this until we, we, we have true equality. Like you said, I think a lot of us didn't know what to do. And for me, I'm not like a very rah-rah person. Like I went to a protest in DC one day, um, but I felt like I could write and that was sort of like my best way to reach other people and young people that I'd work with. And for people that don't know, like you're in central Illinois, that's where I lived the last nine years where we met and it's predominantly white. And for most people, like they just, they don't have a horse in the race, essentially. They just like don't know what's going on. And it's not like really in their backyard or their problem. Like. If you're in central Illinois, there's a lot of great people there, but they don't really have any connection to Ferguson, Missouri. Like they've never lived in a city where they see the diversity. Like I appreciate here where I live in DC, 
like I see all types of people every block that I walk, like, like all, all types of people. And, um, and like you said, we've all experienced this in our clubhouses. There's only a, you only have a handful of black teammates every year. And it's typically like almost, if I looked back at my own career, it's probably two guys every season. And that yeah. was it. And that, I think that about represents the 8% that is in baseball now, but, and those numbers are still dwindling, but yeah, I think it's hard for a lot of kids, especially like in your neck of the woods, just to really understand. Cause they just like live their life. You know, they, they don't know as many black people in central Illinois and they don't know anyone who's really suffering probably from it. When yeah, they never I asked think, or they uh, never asked. Yeah. Well, Springfield's kind of, uh, I've been to Springfield a, probably a half dozen times. Springfield's kind of diverse, diverse, more diverse, more diverse than, yeah. than most. It, it, I would think. It's more diverse, but it's also very segregated. Like there's just like a big city like Chicago. I mean, there's your, there's your pockets where, um, you know, you have your neighborhoods and they're definitely segregated. And then, you know, you get into um, why that is and redlining and, and all the stuff that goes on, especially in the bigger cities. And, uh, you know, you, you know, you're back in Chicago history, Cabrini Green and the Robert Taylor homes and yeah. the way that those families were redlined. And, um, you know, the, the one point that I, I wanted to really make with our players is and I think this was important because I think as a moderator, you're trying to get people to have a conversation you can't be biased, right? Like that, that right away takes away credibility. It's no different than the people that argue CNN versus Fox News. Well, they're both biased. So it's hard to watch sometimes if you're trying to be neutral. So like I wanted to make them understand that you can acknowledge that there's systemic racism, um, that police brutality with black men is an alarming rate comparatively to everyone else, um, and also support police and be pro police. And you can, you can acknowledge that black lives matter. The movement is a great thing. And the protests are great. And they've achieved so much in terms of bringing awareness about the cause and not support rioting and understand and condemn that that's wrong. Like, again, like people think that you have to pick a side. You can acknowledge both. Like Mm -hmm. you can, you can be so tired of black men dying at the hands of the police that were unarmed but also still support the police. You know, and I, yeah. I, I, saw, I saw a quote one time, like, unfortunately, in a really, really hard job, an incredibly difficult job, it's a job where you can't have bad apples. You can't. You can't because people lose their lives because of it. And uh, so, like, that was what I wanted to make clear, guys. It's like, this is a Venn diagram, right? Like, we can all be in the middle. You can, you can want everything. You can support everything and acknowledge that, um, while this may be right, I can also acknowledge that this is also wrong. Like, so that's what I really wanted to push to our players and to just be open about it. And that like, we are going to talk about it. Like I kind of, I kind of used to be like, Hey, no politics guys. Like don't want to hear about it. But like, I guess if this is politics, then, then uh, yeah, we're going to have to talk about it because it's, it's about human lives and, um, and, well, and, and it's, uh, yeah. And, it, and it's not about politics and that's, what's unfortunately, I mean, it's, current news but like with my letter that i wrote i got a lot of angry emails back from my email list and most of them were this is political like i don't need to hear your political bs i'm like not one thing about it was political it's not where it came from had nothing to do with it but if you think being on this side means you're this you know on this you're left or this having this opinion means you're right and I was like, look, what if what if Democrats love pizza and I love pizza? Does that automatically make me a Democrat? Or, you know, if you love ice cream, you're a Republican. I love ice cream. That makes me like that's not a Republican opinion. It's just like 
it's just an opinion, you know, yeah. and, and I think that's what's unfortunate is all this stuff becomes politicized where it's like, no, this seems more like a moral and just like a societal issue, not a political issue. COVID, it's, COVID yeah. and masks has become political. Like how? Yeah, it's everything. It's, it, everything is political. It's so sad. Everything's political now. It's like, it's like a, um, you can't, we, you can't have an, un, again, an opinion that doesn't lump you in with a certain tribe. Yeah. yeah overall thought process or you can't it's just it's almost impossible as much as you want to like you can in your small in your groups like amongst the team it's not going to be political right you're just having conversation because you've got different backgrounds on the team i had to have conversations with all of our kids mainly the high school kids because they're the ones that are that are actually active on social media like they're posting things they're saying they're they're reposting things they're liking things on social media and my big echoing overarching point to them was that the internet's permanent. You have, you know, believe what you guys want to believe, what you guys all grow up, come from different backgrounds. I go, just understand that whatever you post is going to be seen by everybody and it'll never go away. I said, that doesn't mean you shouldn't post it. I'm just telling you if this will, if this may affect you in 10 years from now. So take it for what it's worth. I go, I'm not going to sit here and give you it tell you to think one way or the other. I said that you guys believe what you want to believe. You're all, you know, my big thing is if you have a smartphone, then you're an adult. Like if you're, if you're adult, that's, that's, that's the worst policy ever, but that's, that's but true. that's how I get, I get what you mean, but that's, that's how I treat the high school kids. I was like, look, if you're an adult enough to, to be interacting with basically all of society on your phone, then you have to be adult enough. You have to be adult to, about it. Yeah, I, I get what you. Yeah, mean. you have to be make your make smart yeah. decisions. You have a and smartphone. Was, you're an adult, and if you're adult, you can own a gun, and you can smoke, and you can do drugs. Like here you go. Here's the whole package. You can, like you get your phone. <laughs> you, can, you get a box of guns. <laughs> you say you t- honestly, it's like some of these high school kids might know where to get all the all the drugs and guns. Well, like hopefully not. some of the adults, right? They're just they're they're in t- they're in touch with everybody. But yeah, if you have you. You can have everything has been politi- politicized, even if it's just amongst uh, like a small group of friends. Like it's always one person that feels like that's going to politicize it. Or I try not to talk politics. Dan and I will talk politics like on here, but I really don't try and talk politics amongst my friends or family or anything because I don't one that nobody cares what I think. And I don't really want to hear anybody else's ranting about, yeah. you know, that, Fox that's News. That's the or, biggest that's the biggest problem. Like, I, I don't. I, if, I don't know if I'm Facebook friends with you, Dan. Um, all I do is share um, posts of dogs that need homes. You know, you guys know <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. I, yeah, I co-founded a dog rescue, so that that that's the extent of my Facebook posting. And people yeah. probably hate me because of it. They're annoyed because I, you know. But like the the amount of people that just can't they they need to have their opinion voiced. Yeah, they just have to type it. They have to type it out. But, they have to post it. Hey, like it's okay if people don't hear from you. It's fine. I, I promise mm-hmm. you. Nobody, the, just like Bobby, like <laughs> you said, nobody cares about about you know your opinion on politics. Nobody cares about mine either. I know that. So like right. myself. <laughs> yeah, I, See, I don't know if you guys have uh, Dan. You're not on Facebook, are you? Are you on Facebook still? No, I am, but I unfollow every person and I never post ever. So if you're so Facebook Facebook, friends with me, I don't see any of your stuff. I see literally I have no feed and I haven't posted a personal post unless it accidentally auto posts from like a piece of content, but I don't post anything personally. So there's like on Facebook, there's groups like I live in, I live in a neighborhood called Bucktown in Chicago 
Right, you're probably familiar. Oh yeah, yeah. And so like, there's like Bucktown Community Watch. So I'm like in this group, like you know, you want to see what's going on. And it's just people posting ridiculous things that happened to them. Like I went to the gas station and he was rude to me, and they post it, and then it gets 200 comments, and it's just like, oh, what? Nobody cares. Like nobody cares. What? It's like an update. It's just how people interact now. So why they post machine. it? Yeah. yeah, they post it, and it's it's honestly it's great, great entertainment. I'll screenshot you guys some. Yeah, lo- would love it. Um, so Ryan, do you have new, any new policies going forward with your team? Like, what's like been like the the action plan going forward? Yeah, so I think uh, we'll, we'll make an effort to have formal conversations, um, you know, throughout the semester where we actually sit down and we talk about certain certain issues and. Um, I, I would like for us to, to be much more involved with the diversity center on campus. And um, again, it's just all about getting different perspectives and, and listening to people and, uh, and listening to try to understand, not listening to try to respond. And uh, I think that's really, really important. And uh, I, yeah, I, d- I just want to have a team that um, kind of re- reflects um, what we're all trying to accomplish and be better people and be more understanding of everything. And, um, and I think you can't do that if you don't talk about it. So yeah. Um, and if you would a year ago, if I would have heard conversations um, about this type of this type of thing going on in the dugout, it would have been a little off to me, a little weird. Um, but it, it, I need to be um, I need to be aware of things going on within our team as well, uh, because there's certainly things that um, happen within a group of guys, and and uh, I want to be I want to be on the on the forefront of that in our in our community. And uh, you know, I think you know. My girlfriend has taken a, a uh, an incredible lead with some of that stuff and some of the things that she's done, um, especially for for our black student athletes here on campus. Um, she she works she works in our department and uh, uh, being able to learn from her and understand the things that she's doing to try to make change has uh, been incredibly moving. So um, certainly I, I'm uh, I'm in the position where I can learn a lot naturally, you know, just about every single night that we're together, but. Uh, just just trying to push through and trying to get better and better and better and uh, let guys, you know, let guys um, share their thoughts and, and have that dialogue and, and never let it go away. Cause uh, I think we have a, we have a, we have an issue with that in, in this country where things happen, we react. It's the talk of the, it's the talk yeah. of the town for the a long cycle for mm-hmm. a few weeks, the news cycle, and then it goes away and everyone goes back into their normal lives. And like, we can't let that happen if we want to make actual change. Yeah, it's uh man, it's 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 been an interesting year. I mean, so much going on with COVID, all the protests. Um and like you said, like the reactionary stuff, like I mean, to your point about being able to support everyone. Like I see when I was in DC wandering around through all of it and of course it was like every day very close. Like there's you know, like signs that say all cops are pigs, all cops are evil. It's like that's clearly not true. Like there's yep. a lot of cops that do a lot for people and there's a lot of black cops too. Like it, yeah. like people just want to jump to one side and that's unfortunate where there's just like, there's a lot of angles to all of it. And it just, if you're trying to make good decisions, caring about other people, then that seems to be all that you really need to like eventually get where you want to go. Just like making good decisions with other people's best interests at heart. You know, that yeah. includes everybody. Cause like the whole defund the police thing, it seems like, I don't know what that even means. Like, there's lots of different stuff, but it's all just a big conversation to f- try to figure out what is best for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, Dan, yeah, one, one thing that 
um, I've, I've been trying to, to do, and uh, certainly it's tough now with, with the, the, the COVID climate we're in with the restrictions, but um, I've always wanted to run a, a voluntary youth camp, um, inner city St. Louis, inner city Chicago, and go into their neighborhoods and come with a bunch of college coaches. And uh, maybe this is something down the road you could help me with and, and, yeah. and Bobby help me with. But um, just like you run a showcase camp and, you know, you, you got 15 college coaches there and their gear, um, go do that same thing in the inner cities, right? Chicago, St. Louis, Kansas City, Indianapolis. Um, go go get those communities to, to understand that they can play baseball and we can help them play baseball. Uh, you know, one thing that we, we kind of touched on a little bit uh, that we didn't get into was the lack of, of black baseball players in, mm-hmm. in the major leagues. And that starts with the neighborhoods. They just, they don't have the setup. They don't have the resources and, th- and that's not okay. Um, so I, that's always something I wanted to do. So keep that, keep that in your mind and maybe we can figure something out. And I think that'd be really, really cool and special and uh, you know, to give back to um, a different community, right? Like go give back to a, a different community. We always talk about doing things for the community, but sometimes, like you said, it's in our own bubble and it's where we feel comfortable. Let's, let's be uncomfortable and go do something that maybe five, 10 years ago, we would never even thought about doing. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny you mentioned that because in in DC there's the National Youth Academy, which is in a rough area, um, to the point a, a girl I was talking to, who used to work for the Nationals, she said like on one of their first days open, like someone was murdered, like very close to the grounds, and since then I think they've been open eight or ten years. And I I sent them an email a little while ago asking like what kind of like volunteer opportunities they have there. But they said that like that place is slowly transformed to like a protected space in that in that really rough area where people know like hey if there's people coming to go to the youth academy you leave them alone like they're here yeah. to help our community and it's, it's just like done such good for that 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 spot in DC um, and just like one of the lower income areas so you definitely see that it makes a big difference just ha- get kids having structure and they do lots of like outreach programs and a lot of educational stuff in in addition to baseball stuff there but. Um, I mean, I just heard so many glowing stories about what they've done. It's just been a really special place. I know Ian Desmond talked about that yeah. in, in his uh, Instagram post where he was talking about his experience um, with racism because he, I know, was working when he was with the, the Nationals with the, with the young man who was then shot to death at like age 13, a kid who couldn't read, who was then making such progress and then was murdered in his own community. It's just like those kids really need help and, and they need that like you said, systemic change and people to put themselves out there and to help make that happen. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's crazy. So, um, Ryan, man, we appreciate you being on the show. We covered a lot of good stuff today. Uh, how can people follow up with you and your program and, and where would you like to direct people or any last, uh, sentiments to share? Yeah. Um, obviously we're, we're pretty active on, on social media. Um, you know, where you can follow us on Twitter at, uh, you know, baseball underscore UIS. We're on Facebook. Um, we're on Instagram. And, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to have, get ready for a normal fall here. Our guys will return to campus uh, next week. And um, so far, so far, we're, we're, we think we're going to be able to practice. And you know, we would canceled outside competition, um, which, which stinks for our guys. We were supposed to go to Illinois State, go to Southern Illinois. But, um, yeah, we're trying to do the best we can. We, we will have weekly uh, testing here on campus. So, we're very, very fortunate to be able to uh, be funded for that. So hopefully we can keep all of our all of our players, all of our staff, all of our students safe. Um, we are having our, our annual golf outing um, for all you golfers, um, September 26th. Um, 
and at the rail uh, in Sherman, Illinois. It's actually a PGA course um, mm-hmm. way back when. So pretty cool. Um, $250 for a foursome, $75 for, for an individual golfer. Super affordable. That's on the very low end of, of prices for golf. So uh, for any listeners that are interested in that, it's not just an alumni event. That's uh, that's just a uh, UIS baseball. You want to come out, you want to golf, you want to be around the, the program. We'd love to have you. And uh, Dan, thank you as always. Always a pleasure talking to you. We probably don't talk enough. Um, I know oh. we... Uh, we always have good conversations and uh yeah bobby thank you for for having me on and uh are you still with windy city so oh, yeah oh yeah bobby oh, is, yeah. To, bobby is to, windy city yeah the the brands no I, I know you talked to uh our pitching guy and our our 17 you had Corey a lot yeah yeah um, for sure yeah he's good players so we'll, we'll keep reaching out i mean it, for anyone listening if you don't know anything about uis baseball you should take note i mean that's what I, I would consider the premier Division Two program, definitely in the Midwest, if not the country. Where do you guys uh, project this year as far as ranking-wise? Have they come out with any preseason stuff? Um, not sure. Not sure where we'll be at. You know, I, I like to think we're usually in the in the, in the top twenty-five there. And um, yeah, we're uh, you know the, the the work that's been put into this program from twenty eleven when the the first year of the the program's inception and um, to where we are now, not just with uh, facilities and you know the, the, the recognition we've gotten for uh, some really really good seasons um very very proud of that and uh, it wouldn't happen without the people around our program you know i think you surround yourself with really really good people and really really good things happen um we get a lot of credit as a coaching staff for doing a great job the reality is is uh we have really really good players and uh a lot of really really good young men that, that do a great job do everything we ask to and um, yeah, I, I think sometimes people, you know, like we're, I'm at camp yesterday and I mentioned, Hey, you know, we, we've had, we've had six guys in the last three years, you know, including a couple of signees, um, be signed by an affiliated MLB team or be drafted. And I think people step back and they're like, what, six in three years. I'm like, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. That's <laughs> a lot that, for that high school. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, we've done it all kind of, uh, on, on our own down here in, in central Illinois with, uh, uh, probably as little as possible. Um, like, to this day right now, we still don't have electricity at our field. Um, and, and we've won 40 games on average in each of the last three years. And um, I love the uh, – everyone talks about culture, just like you hear about development, right, those, those, mm-hmm. those words. So, and, you know, elite, so, so elite I, culture I, and development, yeah. I try to avoid them. Um, but I, I'm just so proud of our environment. Um, our players just never make excuses. And that comes from hopefully the, the top down that – um, that it doesn't matter what we don't have. Uh, we focus on what we do have. And uh, that's some really, really good baseball players that really, really care about what they do. And, and hopefully we're doing our job as a coaching staff to, to make sure we're putting them in the best position possible. And um, if you're about getting better, if you're about uh, getting from point A to point B, um, you know, point B is a, is a guy's ceiling. Um, I think we should be an option for anybody in, in, in the Midwest. And uh, certainly we get told no a lot more than we get told yes in recruiting because we're going to go try to, recruit with the big boys and uh you know again we get told no a lot but uh we have really really good players and in turn i think people think uh, you're pretty good at your job which uh fair fair unfair who knows but um yeah really really proud of what we've done here um you know my former boss really set the foundation for for our program and uh you know again uh really really appreciative of you guys having me on and, and having these conversations i think uh hopefully they're interesting to listen to and give some people some insight into oh, for uh, sure you guys and, and, and UIS baseball, myself, and of course, some other things that we just covered that are probably a little more important than baseball as well. Yeah, absolutely. Bob, you want to send us out? 
Yeah, Ryan, thanks for coming on. Always welcome back. Uh, we'll, ca we'll catch everybody on the next episode of Morning Brushback. Thanks.